Hey everybody, uh, this is Jeremy. I'm here with Nick. Hello everyone, how's it going? Uh, we're just going to jump in a little bit here before today's episode to talk to you a little bit. Uh, today's episode topic is Lincoln's legacy with regard to race. Uh, we recorded this episode before any of the incidents in Charlottesville, Virginia over the weekend had happened. We recorded this on the Friday before. Uh, so we wanted to at least address that before we, we jumped in with our topic for the week and it weirdly relates extremely directly to our topic for the week yeah i think we both had the idea to do this and we both had it separately actually um because i think we both spent a lot of time in front of the television keeping track of kind of what was going on um this past weekend with everything we felt we definitely kind of wanted uh um share some thoughts on that as we lead into our great interview which is so relevant to that issues um, that are being talked about currently right now in the news. Right, well said. And I, yeah, the relevance is, I think, key. Um, I don't want to take too long uh, to uh, talk about things that you, you may have already kind of talked talked about in your social circles or at the dinner table or whatever else, but it is important and is worth talking about. I think one of the focuses of our work with this podcast from the beginning um, is about the legacy of the Civil War and how it is not over and how um, racial issues um, still plague our systems and our country. And um, I don't want to give any more time than is due to talking about hate. I think that we talk about, we, I've talked about hate and it's brought me down so much. Um, not to say that we need to ignore it, um, but I, I do feel that, um, that thinking about how, how we condemn white nationalists and what way we condemn white nationalists and how we uh, talk about them uh, is important, but I also think that sometimes it takes the stage away from when we talk about how can we um, stop it, how can we move move to a place where we're above that a little bit, especially in our work as educators, um, how can we make sure that our learners, the people within our spheres of influence, are not those who pick up torches in situations like this and have the ideas that lead to that. And, uh, and it's directly what Dr. Kendi, too, talks about. Um, within the conversation we had and his book. And I think something I took away from his book and thinking about everything, you know, it's time to have an honest discussion. And, and I think that's why it was so disappointing hearing the president's remarks. And it was not an honest uh, approach to what happened and it was going on um, in this. And then when you're the leader of the country, you're supposed to have an honesty, face these difficult tasks. And, you know, that's something I think Lincoln did. Um, kind of relating it back to him, which Trump has definitely not done so far. Right, I agree, and um, I could talk for days about what my feelings about our current leadership situation is, but I'm going to choose to not do that. Um, I I've been focusing a lot of my energy, or trying to focus my a lot of my energy on this concept of revolutionary love and how we can combat hate with love. And I want to play a, a short, uh, about two minutes from. One of the driving forces of that work, um, her name is Valerie um, Carr, K-A-U-R. Um, she talks about dark times and the dark times we're in, and I think it's a powerful message and how I want to focus it um, with more of a malice toward none approach because um, I believe Dr. King said something along the lines of uh, love being the only force that can drive out hate. Um, so I want to focus on how we can combat hate as opposed to how we can um, 
uh, talk about it appropriately because obviously we've screwed that up a thousand different ways. Uh, so I want to play this really quickly and then we'll get into our show with um, our special guest who is one of the leading uh, writers on the topic of race in America, certainly with respect to history, um, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. But first, I'd like you to listen to this um, two minutes. And I apologize, the audio is not the greatest, but the message is, is strong enough where we can muscle through it. So I'm raising, we are raising a brown boy in America. A brown boy who means someday we are turning as part of this faith. And in America today, as we enter an, an era of enormous rage, as white nationalists hail this moment as their great awakening, as hate acts against Sikhs and our Muslim brothers and sisters are at an all-time high, I know, I know that there will be moments, whether on the streets or in the schoolyard, where my son will be seen as foreign, as suspect, as a terrorist. Just as black bodies are still seen as criminal, brown bodies are still seen as illegal, Trans bodies are still seen as immoral. Indigenous bodies are still seen as savage. The bodies of women and girls seen as someone else's property. And when we see these bodies, not as brothers and sisters, then it was easier to bully them, to rape them, to allow policies that neglect them, that incarcerate them, that kill them. Yes, Rabbi. The future is dark. On this New Year's Eve, this watch night, I close my eyes and I see the darkness of my grandfather's cell. And I can feel the spirit of ever rising optimism in the Sikh tradition, Jarnikola, within him. And so the mother in me asks, what if? What if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America... We certainly live in dark times, uh, but hopefully it's the darkness of the womb instead of the darkness of the tomb. We hope you enjoy today's show. These two great gentlemen are dedicated to a proposition. Welcome to the Rail Splitter. This week we are talking about Abraham Lincoln's legacy with regard to race. I am I am your co-host Jeremy. With me is co-host Nick. How's it going, everybody out there in the uh, podcast land? 
Uh, we are here today with a very special guest, uh, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, Dr. Kendi is a professor of history and international relations and the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about his book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which Nick and I both have read and very much enjoyed. Uh, that book, Stand from the Beginning, earned the 2016 National Book Award for Nonfiction. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on, on this show. Cool, thank you. Um, and usually I just kind of I like to thank our guests for coming on. I want to take a minute to thank you specifically for your work. It, it changed me. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a white male. I'm an educator um, at a public school in northern, north central Illinois, and um, I just wanted to thank you for your work. It's really helped me as I'm growing as a leader for equity and hopefully emerging as an anti-racist. So um, I did just want to take the chance to thank you uh, for the work that you're doing and for the work that is stamped from the beginning. Well, I mean, it's the reason why I wrote this book. I think it's for, for people like you and you know, for people like myself, I think we're, of course, all sort of hopefully try, striving to make this world a better place, make this world a more egalitarian place, make America live up to its ideals. Um, so it's certainly an honor to be on the show. Thank you. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate you, uh, you doing the work. Um, the question I wanted to start with, one of the aspects of your book that I found so useful, especially when I'm having conversations uh, with other educators, um, with other people interested in history, or just kind of people in general, is how you structured the book with that spectrum from racist to anti-racist with assimilationists um, somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. Um, I think it helps a lot with the colorblind um, argument. It helps a lot with the... Uh, you know, I ain't no racist, you know, you can't call me racist when really it's not an either or, it's more of a where where are we, all of us on the spectrum. Um, so bringing that to our topic of Lincoln's legacy with race, how would you rate uh, Abraham Lincoln, or at least um, if you could rate Abraham Lincoln on that spectrum, um, is there a way to do that, or how would you do that? So I think it stands to the beginning. I tried to define very clearly the difference between a segregationist idea and a assimilationist idea and an anti-racist idea. And, and I wanted to sort of focus on people's ideas, and I, I found that Abraham Lincoln expressed both assimilationist and anti-racist ideas. So he would uh, speak about and sometimes, of course, even pushed for extremely important egalitarian initiatives but he also simultaneously at times uh, rendered black people in some ways inferior and not necessarily fit for uh, civil rights or voting rights or uh, other uh, aspects that black people were pushing for in, in the 1860s. And so he, Abraham Lincoln, you know, seemed to have this sort of hosh posh of, of anti-racist and, and assimilationist ideas, which is quite similar to many people, many racial reformers, many abolitionists, uh, as I chronicle sort of in the book. I think uh, one thing you talk about in the book is kind of the importance of, you know, 
at the very end of the book, you talk about, you know, how do you go about and, you know, get anti-racist legislation and stuff like that pushed through um, to start, you know, to changing um, the society we live in. Uh, could you t- kind of talk about a little bit about that with Lincoln? Because I think you see that with some of his legislation as the war goes on and kind of what caused him to change, you know, to the point where we got to the Emancipation Proclamation to the 13th Amendment. Sure. So I think first and foremost, Lincoln is typically rated as one of the greatest of all American presidents because he was a very shrewd um, political operator. He had a very clear sense of the mood of the nation, and he was willing to sort of walk in history. He was willing to make very difficult decisions, and uh, by the Civil War, particularly when the Confederate Army started to win some of the early battles, Lincoln began to realize that it was in the interest of the Union to think about weakening the Confederacy by emancipating uh, or, or allowing for the emancipation of slaves. And then doubly weakening the Confederacy by even arming some of those people who who ran away or who were in some of the border states. And and so for him, he realized it was basically in his self-interest, in the self-interest of the nation, uh, to emancipate black people, to even arm black people. And that, that of course, led to, was very decisive in, in the Union winning the Civil War. And so when I talk about it at the end of the book, is that's an example of how racial change has came to to the United States, specifically at the highest of levels, in which those who were in power realized it was in their interest to make some serious changes. And 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 but you had to have political figures who were willing to do those things that were in the interest of the nation, as emancipation emancipation certainly was during the Civil War, um, in the case of Lincoln. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a very good point about that interest convergence kind of created with the opportunity around emancipation when it happened. And I think that's one of the conflicts that, that us, you know, we as Lincoln enthusiasts or, or just me as someone who, who looks to him um, sometimes as inspiration, you know, how do we reconcile, you know, things that he said and did that were certainly racist with what he accomplished and then the why behind that. Um, and I think that, and that's always kind of something I wrestle with that entrance convergence piece. Um, how, how that entrance convergence is necessary for change, but also how do we, how do we look at figures that do that? Um, so what do you think? I mean, do you think that not ours as a Nick in mind, but like the Americans in general, how we revere Abraham Lincoln, you know, almost deify him at times. Do you think that's misplaced? Do you think that there were heroic elements to him specifically well, when it comes to race? I don't actually have a problem. Um, I don't actually have a problem with people revering Abraham Lincoln uh, so long as the, ref- the reverence for Lincoln is not, apologizing for or ignoring or not willing to admit that he expressed racist ideas or he came, he was close, he was slow to coming to emancipation, he was slow to coming to voting rights for a limited 
number of African Americans. And so, you know, there, as I stated, there are many things to revere about, about Abraham Lincoln. Um, I think if other presidents would have been, other people would have been president of the United States, then the Union may have lost the war. Then the United States may have been torn apart. Then that many different things would have been different. But I think his political sort of genius was able to sort of keep the Union together. But at the same time, when it came to racial matters, uh, he certainly was not as uh, advanced as William Lloyd Garrison or Frederick Douglass or other people. But at the same time, who knows where he would have gone if he had lived. Yeah, and that's something we've talked about quite a bit on the show. Yeah. Uh, you spent quite a bit of time in your book talking about uh, Reconstruction and kind of the, the failures, the downfalls of stuff, and kind of the backlash it was met by the um, the white power structure in the South. If Lincoln was, if he did not get assassinated, do you think things would have played out differently at all? I actually do think, I think things would have played out somewhat differently. I'm not quite sure it would have been a dramatic difference. It certainly was the case that many of the former Confederate states were had expectations of voting rights for black people, had expectations of civil rights, had expectations in the, in the summer of 65, 1865 that there would be dramatic changes. But when Andrew Johnson, of course, took power and more or less signaled that these dramatic changes were not going to come, and he more or less passively and then aggressively looked away from the black holes, of course, that created basically an organizing powers that, of course, fought against Reconstruction and then reemerged after it ended. And so, you know, those groups, whether it's the Ku Klux Klan or even former Confederate leaders, may not have been able to organize in the way that they did to end Reconstruction if they did not have that critical organizing period before Reconstruction took pass. And I think if Lincoln was president, they probably would not have had that opportunity. Yeah, and I agree, and that's you know that's among many of the great what ifs in history is what what would re- reconstruction uh, looked like. Uh, to get back a little bit to kind of how we look at Lincoln, and and, and I, you know, and, and can I actually add one more thing? Of course. Um, I think one of the, I think Lincoln was also quite partial to black men who fought in the Civil War. And I think that's one of the reasons why his last speech, you know, he he talked about potentially giving them the right to vote. And so the question about land um, and land reform in 1865, in the late 1860s, he, I think, possibly because of his recognition of how crucial they were in, in, in... these black soldiers were in winning the Civil War, he may have been open to giving them 40 acres and a mule. Uh, and that just giving that group of, of, of black soldiers 40 acres and a mule and then allowing them to stand and, and maintain their land through the force of the federal government could have also created, could have also made dramatic changes in the South. Yeah, and I, I think those ideas... I think that that's a very good um, mirror, I guess, or example of the rest of how Lincoln did things. Um, and I've always kind of wrestled with: Did he do these incremental, small changes that were at the at the threshold of being palatable for 
the other people in power because in his heart he wanted to do as much as he possibly could, but in his mind he knew he could only do so much? Or was it him acting as, you know, needing to save the union or him enacting public policy that he felt would keep his party and elected and those kinds of things? Because I've always, I've always been of the belief that he operated within systems that gave him power to enable others to, to get things done uh, for the oppressed to the degree that he could. Because looking back at it, I don't know what more he one or any one person may have been able to do using structures that put him in power to do that. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's, I try, I, I think y'all probably saw with Stan from the beginning, I try not to deal with the matters of the heart. Right. Um, right. And, and, and how people felt about things, partly because, you know, whether Lincoln or another politician in history, if they were coming from from a state as Lincoln was in Illinois, and that had a very strong sort of pro slavery and pro white Southern contingent, um, and of course more mixed in, in 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 the central part of the state, you know, they may have articulated ideas that they may not have racist ideas that they may not have necessarily believed themselves, but those ideas would have still, of course, proved. Or, or too harmful, of course, to the cause of, of black people. And so for me, I don't, I'm not really as concerned about whether a person believes in the ideas that they're expressing or even the policies that they're putting forth, um, because they're still going to have an impact, whether positive or negative, on, on a group of people. But I will say in terms of Lincoln, you know, going back to sort of land reform, you know, people forget that Sherman issued his special order field number 15, in January of 1865, and while other people in the North, uh, including Frederick Douglass, were critical of that of that order, Lincoln pretty much said nothing. Uh, and so we don't know whether that's because he supported it, or he was sort of, he was focused on the 13th Amendment, uh, as I write in, in, in the book, but certainly he could have, as the commander-in-chief, reversed that order. Um, and he did not, or he could have ordered other military generals to produce a, a, a similar order, which he did not either. And so, you know, there are so many questions, uh, questions that I think would have probably been answered if he would have lived. Yeah. And, and as I kind of try to analyze that in hindsight and really using historic figures as, I don't want to say role models necessarily, but to learn from them, like I, I exist in a, the public school system, which is certainly the creator and um, perpetuator oftentimes of racist ideas. When I come across something like that, I try as hard as I can to undo that or to change the system to the small, within my small sphere of influence as I can, uh, because I am in a position where the system has benefited me being a white male. So looking at Lincoln as kind of, you know, I, I would feel like if I tried to emulate King or Malcolm X or, you know, like I, that's not a perspective I have. And I don't want to appropriate that to say that I can make change in my small sphere of influence in a similar way. However, I can use structures that have been put before me that made it easier for me and possibly change them. And I, I think that Lincoln is a, you know, that's part of why I kind of gravitate to him because I feel he did that. I feel he saw those structures that were in place in front of him and wanted to use those to the degree that he could to possibly help other people. But again, 
it's it's trying well, to get at the where what belief led to those ideas as opposed to the ideas themselves. And and I think what's ironic is that, of course, because of his role in the Emancipation Proclamation, many people sort of revere him for the way, and of course, the Thirteenth Amendment. You know, many people, of course, revere him, revere his racial politics, when in fact his singular and a very important role in the rise of the Republican Party, uh, a Republican Party which at the time was advocating for the rights, or more or less the landed rights, and, and the labor rights of, 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 of poor and working class whites uh, across the country, uh, and to in opposition to rich white slaveholders who, of course, wanted to spread across the country and, and prevent white uh, working-class people and, and even poor people from having access to, to to their labor power or to land. And I think really his role in that, I think, is just as important, if not more, than his racial politics. Um, and, and I don't think people even really understand just how powerful... Um, and how inspirational I think he was as, as a figure. And, of course, he was so powerful, so inspirational in championing free soil, of course, as it was called at the time, or um, more or less free white soil. That, of course, the South felt the need to succeed because they thought that, of course, as, as the end of their ability to expand and the end of the ability to expand with a growing enslaved population, uh, they saw down the line all across the slave revolts in Haiti and their own death. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think that that's an, especially because of the Civil War and slavery and emancipation, I think, yeah, like we gravitate toward those big history book chapter title kind of events, but I think you're really, you're right that the, his role as a populist uh, goes understated, um, but it also kind of it does muddy the water a little bit when you're trying to get an idea of the racial consciousness of, of him, and then also to put him in the mid-19th century, where that lies in, especially, um, you can compare him to a lot of people, but you, in your book you talk a lot about Garrison, who um, clearly had a lot of traction with his ideas, and um, I think had Lincoln's ear in a lot of, uh, a lot of the time, um, and Douglas as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for our listeners who maybe who haven't read the book, could you briefly um, talk about the five characters that you use to drive the book um, and then kind of why you chose each of those individuals? Sure. So Stan from the beginning, of course, is, is, a, is a history that really chronicles the entire course of, of racist ideas, focusing principally on their development of colonial America and ultimately the United States. And, and I really wanted to make this book as accessible to everyday readers as possible. And so I sort of have, I sectioned the book into five major sections, each that had a major character. And so this sort of narrative flows through the life of their ideas and each to a certain extent their lives. And they serve as sort of like windows to this larger debate about race in America. And so the first major character was Cotton Mather who was really early America or colonial America's greatest intellectual and theologian in Boston. And really at the time, in the 1600s, 
religious ideas were largely scientific ideas. So scholars were, were theologians and theologians were scholars. And the racial debate, therefore, was largely a theological debate. And that debate began to secularize by the emergence of the United States, specifically through the role of Thomas Jefferson, who was the second major character in, in, in the text. And, and Thomas Jefferson dies on the eve of the abolitionist movement in the 1830s. And the major figure in that movement, who at first was Lincoln's foe and then became very close to Lincoln, was, of course, William Lloyd Garrison, who was the editor of the most popular abolitionist periodical, The Liberator. And Lincoln, I'm sorry, Garrison, uh, died around the end of Reconstruction and that section picks up with W.B. Du Bois, who's one of the great African-American intellectuals, and he lives until the literally the eve of the March on Washington in 63. And that final section truly covers the last 50 years, the major character of Angela Davis. Um, was it hard choosing those individuals, or did you feel that they were just the natural choices when you kind of go through and you're putting, you know, your timeline together? I think on some level they were difficult, but I think when I set the parameters, so I wanted people, I, you know, I know if they each of their lives sort of bracket critical periods in American history, so I wanted people like that, and then I also clearly wanted people who were really at the forefront of this debate between racist and anti-racist ideas. Each of each of them was that, uh, and 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 finally, I wanted people whose lives and whose ideas were interesting, and certainly they each fit that bill as well. For me, the one that really kind of hit home, and it was kind of W. E. B. Du Bois, and the kind of way you talked about. Um, his changing views and kind of how at first he thought, you know, through education um, that he would be able to change people's beliefs, but then came to realize that. And then being an educator to myself, you know, I, I think a lot of times teachers um, like myself, um, you know, like all of us who are in education, the three of us here talking today, you know, we really want to believe that we can use education and use kind of reason logic to change it. But your book kind of really opened my eyes to, you know, this idea of this self-interest, um, really hitting at home there to make change. Um, I was wondering, is that something that came to you during your research or was that something you already had kind of in mind before you went into the book? It certainly came through my research. And so I entered into writing since the beginning, assuming I think the popular idea, which is that really the fundamental cradle of, of racist ideas is ignorance and hate. So it's ignorance and hate leading to racist ideas and those who have these racist ideas are instituting racist policies like slavery, segregation, or even today mass incarceration. And so I ended up in the book distinguishing between the producers of racist ideas and, and the consumers of racist ideas. So the people who are writing these very popular books with racist ideas are the producers. The people who are reading them were the consumers. The people producing the birth of the nation were the producers. The people watching that film were, were, were the consumers. And I wanted to sort of study these producers and, and literally ask the question over and over again, why were they producing these racist ideas at this time in history? 
And I found over and over again that these people were typically very brilliant people and that they typically were producing these racist ideas to defend existing racist policies, to rationalize existing racial disparities, and that typically those racist policies were created out of self-interest, political, economic, or even cultural. So what I found in the research was that racist policies were in fact leading to racist ideas, and racist ideas were leading to ignorance and hate. And so it then gave me the understanding of why me being an educator, you know, why so many educators have not been able to educate the way racist ideas because we spent, even as we're educating the way the racist ideas of consumers, the producers are still producing new racist ideas to keep people blinded. Um, and, and so, and so I, I sort of show that, I think, in the text. Yeah, and I found that to be so valuable because, it, it, you know, and maybe there's a third piece of that argument where we can't educate them away, but perhaps we can, and I believe this is what your book at least did for me, was educate me on how to identify a racist idea. Um, so it's, instead of looking at racism as ignorance or hate or anti-racism as loving your, you know, your fellow human, it's more uh, being anti-racist is identifying where those racist ideas manifest themselves. And being pu- in public education, it's a little easier to see that because it's, you know, it's a system that, that over time has been not, you know, has had several racist ideas manifest themselves within it. Um, yeah, and, and, and I think we, I think you can, like currently I'm writing a book entitled How to Be an Anti-Racist. And, and, and I think it's possible to educate away someone's racist ideas. Um, but at the same time, as you stated, you then have to be on guard and consistently being able to sort of ward off new racist ideas because they're constantly sort of circulating. And, and But the people whose racist ideas we can educate away are consumers. So the producers... That's a different story. So they're not producing and expressing these ideas out of ignorance. So that's why we can't change their ideas, change what they say out of education. But for the consumers, we can. And so I, you know, when, when I sort of speak about, okay, what's the solution then? Well, if we, if you had a hose, and there's an analogy I like to use, if you had a hose and that hose was shooting out, racist ideas and that America would be wet, certainly you could continue to get America towels, right, and try to dry off sort of America. That certainly would, would help in some way. But what we should be focused on, of course, is turning at that hose, turning off those policies that actually generate those ideas. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I think that um, that's... The, the kind of the the, the the double challenge I think that's in front of us is not only to create equitable spaces for all of our students, but also how do we educate, you know, to make sure that we don't, we're not creating future oppressors, right? That we're, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, and that's what we're trying to work through. Like both how are we limiting oppression 
uh, in our school systems um, and our public policy in general, but then how, how also are we creating the next generation to, to not create them? Or, or I should say, not, first not consume them and hopefully also not, create, not uh, produce them. Certainly. Um, the, one of the, what I found interesting about your selections of the figures that you focused around is that I think they all are at the forefront, but some of them are kind of have different, I don't know if you want to say reputations or we're familiar with them in different ways. And the, the piece on Jefferson, I think, is extremely important because we hear so many, so often, I think the foundation of a lot of racist ideas is this reverence for the founders and, you know, that's what the founders intended and all this stuff. Um, so I really like how Jefferson, um, how you paint a very clear picture of who Jefferson was and how his racist ideas manifested themselves. Um, what do you think about, you know, because Lincoln obviously drew a line straight back to Jefferson in the speech that we look to as kind of a manifesto on who we are as Americans in the Gettysburg Address and the all men were created equal line. Um, there is that presence even up to this day of of what Jefferson did. Do you think that that helps cement racist ideas? Should we try to get away from that? Or can we pull some of those elements that may be egalitarian, at least by definition or at least on their face, uh, to hopefully help people have an understanding? Well, I, I think first and foremost, I in the section that covers the Jefferson Declaration of, of Independence, you know, I wanted to give readers a, the context for that statement. Um, but in terms of in the 1770s, there was this really Atlantic debate, this debate all around the Western world about whether the human groups, whether the, the racial groups uh, were different species of beings that had their own creation stories, what was known as polygenesis, or whether it was monogenesis, that we all came from Adam and Eve, as Christians would say, we all came from basically the same uh, mothers and fathers. And so that was the debate that was going on at the time. But both monogenesis and polygenesis viewed black people as inferior, uh, because even monogenesis would say, yes, we all came from Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve was white, um, and God was white. And the descendants of Adam and Eve became black and ugly and inferior. And so this concept of being created equal is certainly an egalitarian, anti-racist idea. But many people in history, including Jefferson, believed that same idea and then simultaneously believed that these people, after creation, became inferior. And, and that's really the central or principal idea of assimilationist thought. We are all created equal, but black people are inferior by nurture. While segregationists would say black people are inferior by nature, we're created unequal. While assimilationists would say the racial groups are not only equal by nature, but also by nurture. And so I wanted to sort of show that uh, through Stan from the beginning that, and, and, and I think even in our time, you know, we just assume that that idea is inherently, and there's no way that that idea about us being created equal can be turned into a racist idea when in fact it can. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think you did a, a fantastic job in the book of, of showing that. Um, and, 
so what do you do like in your practice and maybe in your teaching when you confront a racist idea like that? Like when someone points to poverty or crime or tries to, tries to tell this narrative of um, something else contributing to income and disparity or, or whatever it may be, like, do you find success with, I mean, cause your book is deep and I think, you know, at least from my perspective, if I had not come at it with a pretty open mind and, and really stepping in and leaning into to racial equity work as a white person, I don't think I, I, I don't know how I, it would have sunk in, I suppose. Do you, do you kind of go there with that? How, how do you confront those issues when they, when they arise? So, so typically I, I think most people who say that they are not racist, which is, you know, pretty much everybody, mm-hmm. um, most people cannot even define what a racist is. Most people who would say they don't have racist ideas or that is not a racist idea do not have a definition of a racist idea. And that's, the, to, to me, the huge hypocrisy. That's the contradiction. You're so adamant about saying you're not racist or you don't have racist ideas. But then if you were to be asked what is a racist, you know, people, or what is a racist idea, people cannot say that. And so I say that to say, typically when somebody expresses something that I know to be a racist idea, you know, in front of me, I ask them, what is a racist idea? I ask them before I even address that specific idea, I try to get on the same page of what a racist idea is. Because really, that's the crux of the argument. Um, that's the crux of the debate. And the unfortunate thing is every racist and every articulator of racist ideas in history have tried to define racism outside of their ideas. In other words, let me make let me define racist ideas in a way such that my ideas will not be considered racist. And to me, that's not fair. We have to create a standard definition, and then we have to apply that definition to our ideas critically. And I think that's one of the things that I did, you know, even in, in searching in researching for this book. You know, I had to create a very simple definition of a racist idea. And then I went in search of those ideas. And before I can find any American in history who had expressed those ideas, I first found them in myself. Yeah, and that's, and I, th- I think that that's extremely useful, certainly. And it's hard for me to step outside the, the mindset of an educator because, I, you know, I always think about um, how, how do we do this, especially when we're talking with young people and working with young people. Um, and I... The the concept of a racist idea has been so helpful to me because before I was kind of more, you know, we exist in a racist system, and because we are agents in that racist system, public education, we have acted in a in a racist manner. We had to have. How do we identify that and eliminate it? That's a little more nebulous. It's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly where that happened, and it also requires you to really take stock in yourself. Whereas if you look at what ideas are manifesting themselves or, or what ideas do we have? And if we have ideas that are anti-racist and our results seem to show otherwise, those ideas are not coming through in our practice. So the concept of the racist idea as opposed to the racist action, um, to me, helps uh, articulate it in a way uh, that I, I hope or I'm hopeful can can produce some some results and some progress. 
And, and I think that's what I was trying to strive to do through writing. And from the beginning, uh, clearly, as you know, I mean, the subject of race is is a subject that we all encounter um, or even try to avoid. But we typically, it's, it's, it's very difficult to engage in these conversations because in many ways, I don't think, I think we, when I say we, scholars of, of and intellectuals who sort of study this, can simplify the racial discussion, the racial history, so much more than we have. And that's one of the sort of things that I, that I attempted to do in writing this book, to simplify the complexities of race that will give people the ability to understand uh, those complexities. And, and I think, you know, defining a racist idea in a very simple way, any idea that suggests the racial group is superior or inferior to another racial group in any way, I think it gives people, okay, let me apply this definition to, to different ideas, including hopefully their own. Uh, I agree. And then kind of um, listened to uh, you and Jeremy here talk. I, I started to think about the idea that you used in your book and you talked about several times this, uh, the use of uh, racial progress and how it's really, you know, um, a lot of racists will use racial progress to help kind of slow it down. And then I was thinking, you know, obviously we had the Lincoln podcast, so, you know, Reconstruction, I think you had some people saying, hey, we've done these amendments, racial progress is made, and then they kind of use that as a cover-up to do, you know, Jim Crow and things down there. And then I think back to the, towards the end of the book, you start talking about Obama's presidency, and you really get into how a lot of some people were saying, this is racial progress, and then, you know, that we've achieved equality. Um Another thing I'm fascinated with is kind of, you know, spirals and like the cycles of history. Do you feel that we have some parallels now and kind of what we're going through in our current climate to what there was during Reconstruction? Oh, without question. And, and I, this concept of, of racial progress, which is really an historical concept, was something I had to sort of wrestle with, you know, as I constructed this book. And I think racial progress is certainly undeniable, but it's also undeniable that there's that as I was writing this book, more black people had been were in, in prison than ever before and people were mourning Trayvon Martin. And so it's you know, how do you reconcile these two things? And and I began to realize specifically through looking at at reconstruction and even the civil rights and black power movement and the subsequent movements and even in our time with the, with the backlash to the Obama presidency. And I found that really you had, and Lincoln in particular, and one of his quotes, um, I think his, when he gave a speech to Maryland in Maryland to sort of when they were uh, celebrating their, emancipation, he talked about two ideas of freedom, um, more or less, you know, of course, I'm, I'm loosely paraphrasing it, but you basically had this not notion of the freedom to oppress and the freedom from oppression. Um, and, and I really, you know, thought about more about, about America's racial history, and I realized that we actually have a dual history in the same way we have a dual sense of freedom. 
And and I think those dual the dual history plays on this dual sense of freedom. And what I mean by a dual history is that we have had certainly continuous racial progress, but I also chronicle in Stanford Beginning that we have consistently had the progression of racism. And racist ideas in particular have been critical in people not seeing the progression of racism. And so therefore they're not fighting against that progression and those who are benefiting from that progression are allowed to continue to benefit. Yeah. And that's, um, and I, and I like how you tied that back to that. And I, and I do see a lot of those parallels and it's, um, you know, and I agree that in, in, in those those conversations, I think, are essential to have that, that and you articulated very well toward the end of the book about how progress is not success is not, you know, there's no finish line. But if there were, you know, you can't say that because you're halfway there, that's good enough, because um, obviously you're not, you know, we're not at an egalitarian or an equitable uh, society. Uh, when you were uh, looking at Garrison, was there anything about uh, his relationship with Lincoln that kind of made you feel like he had influence? Uh, like, do you think that Garrison's role in emancipation was bigger than a newspaper? Uh, as a journalist, was he, do you think his role is understated in history? So, I think according to Garrison's biographer, Lincoln had been following Garrison for quite some time. Uh, from his liberator newspaper being in Lincoln's law office in Illinois, I believe, in the 1850s, and of course, then meeting um, during Lincoln's uh, presidency. And, and so it, it seems to me that Garrison's words um, were, of course, extremely per- persuasive persuading quite a few people across the North about the horrors and wrongs of slavery. And so who knows whether some of Lincoln's move towards abolition were not inspired by by Garrison. It would not surprise me in the least if it was. And it seems as if Lincoln's treatment of Garrison during those critical years when, of course, emancipation, months after sort of uh, emancipation, or I should say Lincoln, some of Lincoln's aides, um, possibly shows that adoration. Because sometimes, you know, a president can't really show in that, the adoration, but certainly some of his lieutenants are more free to, from the bounds of, of political sort of, uh, sort of, was proper to, to do that. And certainly, Garrison had some huge fans in the Lincoln administration. And and so it seems to me that that we know that he certainly inspired members of Lincoln's administration, which, of course, was extremely important. Whether he did that for Lincoln is not something we can say definitively, but it probably, I, I would not be surprised if he did. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I, and I agree, and that's, you know, kind of getting at, like, what motivated Lincoln, and, you know, and trying to get at where where those influences were. When you're talking about um, kind of emancipation and when you're teaching people about Lincoln and Garrison, and um, 
one of the phenomenons that comes up is that white savior narrative that I think a lot of racist ideas are kind of kind of spawned from. Um, how do you avoid, or how should we try to avoid kind of going down that road, or for our learners to go down that road and to really kind of see the those issues of history for what they were, while avoiding that kind of pitfall into a racist idea? Well, the way that I seek to do that is just tell the complete story. And, and and I think in telling the complete story, that story does not begin with Lincoln in, in, um, with Lincoln issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, it's, I mean, going to effect, you know, January 1st, 1863. We see years before that, from the beginning of the Civil War, black people running, of course, away and weakening their plantation, weakening the Confederacy. Uh, following union lines, being willing to assist union lines, allowing the union army to recognize the ways in which their resistance by their own feet is assisting the Confederacy to the detriment of the Confederacy, assisting the union to the detriment of the Confederacy. And then ultimately Lincoln and the Lincoln administration Allowing that to become almost a policy through the through the contraband act and ultimately through the Emancipation Proclamation. So I tell the story that you know Lincoln really only had the power uh, when he had issued the Emancipation to free a very small percentage of, of, of black people, but he gave he empowered black people to run away and to seize their freedom. And black people certainly did that. Um, and, and so really it becomes more of a binary now. It's not just sort of Lincoln sort of saved them as much as black people saved themselves. It's not as much as Lincoln freed them as much as black people freed themselves. And, and, and I think that that's certainly the truth. And, and I, so I just try to tell the sort of complete story. Um, and that complete story is Lincoln issuing these laws and black people using them to gain that freedom. I think that's an outstanding way to tell that story, and I, I, I really like that because I always kind of tend to uh, turn to, uh, you know, Lincoln didn't free anybody because, you know, as he says, that we're endowed by our creator. The freedom was always, freedom is always all of ours as humans. Uh, it can be, you know, it, it was taken away and he and he stopped that, but I really like that. Uh, angle of of individuals taking it for themselves and him just creating a framework for which they could do that. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. For those of you guys that are uh, listening, uh, we're recording this on a Friday afternoon, but it's an hour later where Dr. Kendi is, so you're taking time on a Friday afternoon, which I really appreciate right in front of your weekend. Uh, real quick before we go, um, you do have an upcoming book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Do you have a, a short plug you want to give for that, or what can we expect um, from from that new work? Sure. So I, through, I think, writing stand from the beginning, I not only chronicled the history of, of racist ideas, but also the history of, of anti-racist ideas. And, and I think that concept of an anti-racist idea in sort of talking to many people out the book really sort of excited people because it gave them something to sort of strive for. And so I think I decided that I wanted to sort of tell my story, uh, my intellectual journey, and how I came to be uh, an anti-racist. And when I say be, 
I'm specifically saying be as opposed to become because it's, you know, being a racist or anti-racist is not necessarily a fixed identity. You know, every day you have to, you know, by what you say and by what you do, it, it's reflecting an anti-racist or, or, or racist. And so, you know, I sort of show my journey um, and really the book begins with me expressing a series of racist ideas about black people. And it really, of course, ends with me having a more anti-racist mentality. And, you know, I'm hopeful to, sh- to, sh- to show the reader that really this is a journey and, and encourage them to come on this journey. Wow, that uh, that sounds amazing. I'm extremely excited for that. About when do you think that's going to hit the stands? <laughs> <laughs> hurry I'll hurry up and next- write this book, Dr. Kennedy. We need it. <laughs> okay, well, maybe as early as next year, so we'll see. Okay, outstanding. Um, one last question for me here. Um, you know, you kind of end your book with the, the two lines, there will come a time, maybe, just maybe, that time is now. To me, I kind of felt that that was optimistic, um, and I like that. With our current climate, has that optimism grown, or has it decreased a little? Well, actually, on some level, it's grown, because I think the resistance to Trump is not only a resistance to Trump, it's a resistance to the things that, that Trump represents. And one of those things that he represents is inequality, is discrimination, is racist ideas. And so I'm hoping and I'm hopeful that the resistance that will drive out Trump will also drive out racism. Wow, very well said. Uh, Dr. Kendi, we really, really appreciate you taking your time uh, to come on the show today. And of course, we appreciate your your anti-racist work. Um, Again, the book is Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, and coming out hopefully next year is How to Be an Anti-Racist. For our listeners, it's a great read. I I got it literally Tuesday um, when uh, Jeremy told me you were coming on, and I couldn't put it down until I finished it today. So... And then, as oh, wow. and as our listeners know, you know, I'm not the brightest. So um, <laughs> if I'm able to do it, everybody should pick it up. Yeah, and and I agree. And every now and then, I get caught daydreaming, uh, and they're like, you know, and many times it's been kind of ruminating on the book. So it's, you know, good books are educational. Great books impact you well after you're finished reading them. And I would definitely classify Stand from the Beginning as a great book. Doctor Kendi, thank you once again. Thank you for your work, and thank you for coming on the show. All right. Thank you all so much for having me on. Yep. Thank you. Take Hopefully care. our paths cross somehow, someday, and uh, and we wish you all the best. All right. You too. Take care. Yep. Thank you. And to our listeners out there, keep walking the world with malice toward none and with charity for all, and we will see you next week.